everybody and welcome to the second episode of the Jammy podcast. My name is Jammy and I will be hosting these episodes. Last episode you will have heard me talking to Doctor of Cosmochemistry and TV scientist Dr Tim Gregory. Today I'll be interviewing the Olivier award winning playwright and actor Henry Shields. Right then, let's get right into it. I'm here with the Olivia Award-winning playwright and actor Henry Shields, long-time member of Mischief Theatre Company and co-writer of the current West End productions Magic Goes Wrong, the comedy about a bank robbery and the play that goes wrong, starring in the original cast of these productions. Henry, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So, um, first of all, have you always had a passion for theatre and how did you originally get into it? I have, yeah. I think uh, when I was at school, I always used to do the school plays and I used to, uh, I was one of those annoying children that sort of made their, made their parents watch while I did performances in the living room, that sort of thing. Uh, horribly embarrassing looking back on it now. Um, but I was always a bit obsessed with performance, I think, the performance nature of it. And I always just loved comedy. Um, I watched all uh, all stand-up comedy I could find when I was a kid and a lot of old things like Forty Towers I was really obsessed with and uh, Graham Linehan's work and stuff like that. Um, so those two things, my, my obsession with performance and my obsession with comedy eventually came together to make me into what I am now, a sort of comedy writer, performer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about how Mischief came about. Yeah, so Mischief Theatre uh, actually started, uh, I joined a year after it had already come into existence under a different name. Uh, it was initially called the Scat Pack, and it was an improv group that came out of uh, Lambda, the drama school in London. And I uh, joined it based on my love of improv at the time. Improv comedy was another thing that I was really into. And uh, that was a, there was a heavy improv presence at Lambda at the time, thanks to one of our teachers, Adam Megiddo, who's a big name in improv. Um, and so I, I joined the group then, and we spent the first sort of five years of the company's existence was uh, as uh, an improv company primarily we just did comedy improv um, we used to go to the edinburgh fringe every year and perform in london as much as we could and then eventually we branched out into scripted work with the play that goes wrong that was our first thing outside of uh, outside of improv that's great um your productions are just so funny do you ever find it hard when you're on stage not to start laughing at other people's or is it just after a while (laughs) (laughs) no definitely i'm not i'm not great at keeping a straight face i'm one of the worst (laughs) i think dave often makes me laugh quite a lot uh who plays max in the play goes wrong those things he's often pretty good at but usually it's the things that uh the things that actually have gone wrong that make us laugh because obviously when the play is going as it should there's no surprises you're you know what exactly what's coming so it doesn't catch you off guard but then there's sometimes someone will say something slightly differently or someone will actually drop a prop or something and and you're the only ones who'll know that that wasn't supposed to happen and then it gets really hard not to laugh yeah i've spent a lot of time laughing on stage but is it easier to disguise like mistakes that do happen because it is goes wrong sometimes it is sometimes it isn't it's it's weirdly i think probably more difficult than in a regular play because the audience are looking for things going wrong all the time. They know they're seeing a goes wrong show. So yeah. anything, anything that happens, if someone drops a prop by actually by mistake, everyone immediately sees it and they immediately think that's part of the show. But then you've got to integrate that somehow because usually yeah. that will have gotten in the way. You, you know, <laughs> someone's <laughs> going to have to pick that prop up or it's going to ruin the rest of the scene. You know? Yeah. 
Is there ever a time in early previews when you might say a joke that you have found really funny and then it just receives no laughs? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. I like to think we get it right about 70% of the time, maybe, in our writing. So we'll write the script and we'll test it with our, with our team, our cast, and then we'll, yeah. we know going into the first preview, we think it's all going to work. We know it won't, but we don't know what's not going to work, essentially. So for the first few weeks, at least, there's always a few things that you, you really think are going to work. You really put yourself on the line and you deliver the joke as well as you can and it goes to absolute silence. And those moments are pretty soul-destroying. They're, they're yeah. pretty crushing. <laughs> but you know that you have to go through them in order to get to the good material. So there's a lot of rewriting that happens early on. Yeah. And so you write with Jonathan Sayer and Henry Lewis. Do you have a process in writing and... Is there an element of planning? There is. Uh, I, you know, I, I wish there was a way of just saying this is the way you write things, but it's just not that simple, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that every writer has their own process. The one that we've gradually settled on after years of sort of trial and error is that we'll start by just writing something. So we'll have a very vague idea. We'll write a couple of pages of that, or maybe five pages, um, try and make each other laugh, try and find something that we enjoy. And then when we've got some stuff on the page, we'll sit back and look at it and go, okay, I, now we can see where this is going. Now we can start to plan and we'll, we'll spend a day or however long a full writing session, not writing any more words, just planning out what's going to happen. And then you go back in and you write more actual material. And then after you've done another chunk, you go back out and you replan based on what you found. And it's a sort of ongoing process of back and forth planning versus just getting stuff down. So it's, it's hard to give a very specific answer, but, you know, that's yeah. how we do it. <laughs> and roughly how long does it take to write a play or a series? Uh, we, we've actually just finished writing the second series of The Goes Wrong Show. Um, we just finished our first draft of that, I should say. It's so exciting. all of the scripts, yeah, it's very exciting. All of the scripts are now at first draft stage, probably actually second draft. We, we've done a second draft on them. But now they're ready to be read out loud by our whole, all of our team and be given notes by producers and then we'll go back and do more drafting. But it's taken us 11 weeks to get to this stage, which is seven episodes. So about a week and a half per episode is probably about right. With a play, I think we usually get a first draft done in about a month. Um, yeah. But it's a really long process overall. You, as I say, yeah. you get your first draft done in a month. And then you do reading and you note it and then you do another draft and then another draft and another draft. Really, the whole process takes probably probably six months to a year before you've actually got the script that you're happy with. And it must just be great to see it finally come onto stage once or screen once it's all done. Yeah, it really is great. It's really it's very, very satisfying when things work. Obviously, when things don't work, it's uh, very disappointing. <laughs> yeah. So the play that goes wrong started off in a pub theatre and now is Olivia Award winning with productions all around the world. How did you get it to touring and West End in the beginning? Well, we did it all off our own back initially. We, as I say, we had this improv company that had made a little bit of money that we managed to save by never paying ourselves. By only ever <laughs> any money we made, we put straight into the bank and no one took a salary or anything. And we took all of that money and put it into putting Play That Goes Wrong on for the first time uh, and the first few productions went like that and then really the, the big step up was when Kenny Wax uh, came to see the show, Kenny Wax and Mark Bentley 
our two producers now. They saw the show when it was at the Trafalgar Studios and uh, was about to go to Edinburgh and do very well there, as it turned out. And Kenny said he wanted to put it on tour. So he kind of got the investors and put the budget up um, to make it into a first-class touring production, what they're called. So touring big venues around the UK. We did a six-month tour. We, we added a lot to the play, made it into a bigger two-act thing. Um, and from there, it really just just built and built. So uh, Nika Burns, who uh, owns is, is head of NIMAX, which owns a lot of theatres in London, came to the show when it was on tour, put it into the West End, and then from there it went to Broadway and all over the world, and it's it's kind of snowballed from that point on. Yeah, and I think one thing that when I saw the play that goes wrong in London is that it's quite an intimate theatre, the Duchess. So it's oh. the jokes that it's almost like there's a lot of audience participation feels much more intimate there is yeah you can tell i think that it started in a much smaller venue because it, it yeah. started in the old red line which is a, a pub theater of about 50 seats so a lot of the jokes then were obviously catered to people being six feet away um at their most really so it's really small subtle jokes that you'd only pick up if you're right right up close um obviously it had to expand slightly when we made it fit the bigger venues so a lot of the jokes got bigger or we moved into big set piece things like uh, we added the things about the clock and the lady getting inside and all those, all those sections big slapstick things to make it work on a big scale but yeah the Duchess Theatre in London is a very nice theatre in that it even though it's about 500 seats it feels much smaller it feels like you're really close to the stage which allows us to continue doing those more subtle nuanced jokes. And are there any moments that can you name any describe any times when things have actually gone wrong uh, yeah it happens quite a lot unfortunately probably not so much now now it's pretty much yeah. set in stone occasionally there's errors but uh in the early days when we were still finding our feet there were a lot of little things um do you remember the section in the play where they get the phone and drag it across the stage oh uh, yes phone, kind of they yeah, make because... a little phone line yeah, yes, because the guy's up on the yeah. on the dropping level thing. That actually initially came came out of uh, improvisation during a performance because the phone had to be nailed down when it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> it was supposed to be that the phone in the first act is nailed down so that it doesn't fall off at, at an annoying time when we're doing jokes with it. And then in the second act, the phone, phone is supposed to be free so that we can carry it over. The initial joke was uh, one of the characters picks up the phone, walks across the stage and gives it to the guy. And then in practice one night, I think, or I don't know where we were on, Cheltenham or someone like that, we found that someone had forgotten to take the bolt out in the interval. So the phone was left genuinely stuck to the table. And in that moment, uh, me and Dave improvised the section where he took the phone and then held his hand out like that. And I grabbed his hand and then made my hand into a phone. And that ended up becoming the, the piece that we use now in the show. So, yeah, sometimes it's really cool when things go wrong and you make it work. Yeah, you've got to think very on your feet. Yeah, which... Come, our, our improv background comes into play a lot. Yeah, very helpful. And the stunts you do are, are very physical. Can you tell us a bit about how you do them without getting hurt? I'm assuming lots of practice. Yeah, a lot of practice. Um, a lot of practice with a lot of kind of big foam things. You learn a lot about tumbling is the proper term for it, where you you learn how to essentially how to take a hit without it really hurting you. Um, so you you start very gently and slowly. You put a big Map down, you'd learn forward rolls, proper forward rolls where you're kind of throwing yourself into the ground. 
Um, and you learn where you can actually take a hit on your body without it really hurting. So your elbows and your knees are pretty good at taking hits that will give you a bruise but won't leave you permanently damaged. All of that said, about half the cast now, from having done this for seven, eight years, about half the cast have now got permanent injuries, including myself. Because <laughs> it is a dangerous thing. I have a uh, herniated disc in my neck, which is a sort of permanent injury that will just be there for the rest of my life. Lots of little things, little kind of ticks and things. Dave's dislocated his shoulders a couple of times. Um, Bryony's got very bad hips now. Just comes from doing slapstick. It's it's just a gradually it will wear you down. <laughs> <laughs> so a new one act version of the play that goes wrong has just came out in North America for schools. Um, do you think it's important that schools around the globe get this opportunity to put on productions, and if so, why? Oh yeah, I think it's great. I think it's really good to uh, have younger people getting into slapstick comedy early on sounds like quite a niche thing <laughs> but it really is good because it's it's a very uh, become quite a niche field not many people can do it or know much about it but it used to be used to be much more popular back in the sort of 70s and 80s with the Ray Cooney plays and stuff like that um, and it's always great to have more people doing it the younger the younger people are when they get started the more likely they'll be to go into writing and creating their own later on and hopefully the, the quality will improve and you'll get better and better writers and performers because they're starting at a younger age. Um, and I think um, one thing that I loved about the play that goes wrong is it's not a typical, like, it's important, I think, to teach the younger children that it's, plays don't have to be long and boring and just, they can be funny and exciting. Yeah, it's become a really popular play, I think, with, uh, with GCSE drama and things like that because it's, it's such a great way to engage with kids who don't want to go and see an Inspector Calls or whatever, which is what I did with a GCC drama, quite a dry, slow play that's quite old now. It's a really good excuse to get people to go to the theatre and actually have fun and, and engage with drama in a way they wouldn't usually. Yeah. If you had to choose one of your productions, which one do you find the funniest? I Oh, that's tough. <laughs> the funniest... I think probably is uh, is the comedy about a bank robbery. Yeah. But that's probably not actually true. That's the one I find the funniest. It's probably not the funniest. But I love that show more than the others. Um, just because it was so different to everything else we've done. I really enjoyed funny comedy about a bank robbery. I think the fan favourite is probably Peter Pan. I think that one's the one yes. that most people enjoyed the most. And I understand why. It's a great play. Yeah, well, hopefully, I've only seen the play that goes wrong in London, oh, but right. I keep asking my parents to go see the others, so hopefully soon. <laughs> yeah, you need to, well, I think Bank Robbery, unfortunately, is just closed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a shame. Instagram. Yeah, it's a shame. It just sort of came to the end of its, uh, I mean, it had been going for four, five, five years, I think, so it had done a good long run. Um, but there's always plans to bring them back. There'll be a Peter Pan, I'm sure, when things open back up again. You yeah. should see that one. It's great. Have you seen the TV version? I have seen, yeah, I saw the yeah. TV on BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from writing and acting, do you have any other passions which you like to do in your spare time? I actually have loads of hobbies. I don't know why, but I sort of collect hobbies now, I've realised. <laughs> I, uh, I fly hot air balloons sometimes. That's, that's fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Um, something that my dad had always done for, for many, many years, so I grew up doing that. 
Uh, I, well, I play a lot of computer games. I read a lot of books. I, uh, I'm about to take up sailing, which is cool. I'm learning French. I'm doing all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Well, lockdown has given us all an opportunity to do it's stuff true. like this. Yeah, I've, well, I've, I've taken up French really just since going into lockdown. I, I spoke a little <laughs> bit of it, but I thought I've got to do something while I'm trapped inside for months. So I've been doing online lessons. It's good. As well as having numerous shows in the West End, your company is now a major hit on TV. Um, what's the difference between performing on TV and on stage? And, and do you have one that you prefer? I, oh, it's really tough to say. On stage, you as a performer, you get to engage with the audience much more. You do get to really feel their laughter and you get to respond to it kind of in the moment and you have the freedom to improvise if you need to or you know if you get a chance but in our plays we kind of have license to improvise if we want to which is lovely that said tv you do you do have so much more control i think that's the big difference that you can stop and do something again you can uh, yeah you can you can run a scene three or four times if you need to because you didn't get it quite right um the audience in the room with you will laugh the first time because we do perform all of our shows in front of a live audience. The second, the third, the fourth time, they probably won't laugh as much, but you, you do know that you're not really doing it for them. You're doing it for the cameras and you can always just take the laugh that they, that they gave you on the first one and drop it into the fourth take. So there's an artificial uh, nature to the performance that may be slightly less fun. Um, of the two, really tough to say. I probably prefer TV um, because of the, the it's a slightly more exciting world, I think. Yeah. Uh, so the Goes Wrong show started on BBC One last year. Um, did the BBC approach you with this idea of transferring it to TV or did you submit work to them? Uh, it's been a really long process getting it on TV that started with Peter Pan Goes Wrong. The, yes. Uh, the Christmas special we did of that, which was I believe it was the BBC who approached us. We already had some contact. Could we been we'd been pitching various sitcom ideas. Um and then Chris Sussman, I think it was, who at the time was head of BBC Studios, uh, or head of comedy there, came to see the show and just said, let's do this. Um let's put Peter Pan on TV. It was sort of his idea. Um and then from there it's been a very long process. We did Peter Pan and then a year later we did Christmas Carol goes wrong. And then a year later, we did The Goes Wrong Show. Um, but TV is a slow-moving world. It takes a lot of time to get people on board, to get everyone to agree to put the huge amount of money that it costs to make these shows, to put that on the table um, and commit to yes. making it. And it's quite technically demanding, the, the Goes Wrong Show. Were there any behind-the-scenes things that the watchers did not get to see? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we ended up cutting about six or seven minutes off every episode when we got to the end. <laughs> we always found that we had too much material. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that people didn't get to see. Tech, the big technical things, I think most of them made it onto the screen because they, because they were so expensive to do, we couldn't bear to cut them. <laughs> so the really big stuff, you, you, you got to see it. One of the most challenging things I th for me personally was the snowman. Do you, <laughs> do you the Christmas episode? Yeah, yeah, the Christmas one. Yeah. The snowman gets eaten by the toy making machine. Remember that the costume. Yeah. He gets, he gets pulled in by his scarf, and then he gets lifted up, and he and I fall out the bottom in my pants. Um, so it was, it, I'm really happy with it. It came it came came out really really funny, uh, but that was a real challenge to get that to work because genuinely I was inside that snowman costume 
I was holding on to a, a sort of hidden rope that was on the side of the machine so I could hoist my own weight up and press off, press my feet off against the, the machine through a gap in the costume and then the costume would lift around me and then I would sort of tear my way through the bottom. It was really complicated to get that right. Um, there was a lot of pressure on us, a lot of time pressure to get that one right, so it was a really tricky thing. And poor, in, in, the, in the machine, there were a couple of poor guys with a big rope just hauling. <laughs> they were just hauling me, hauling the whole thing through my weight plus the costume, this big bulky thing, hauling it over these rollers. Yeah, it was really tough. <laughs> I like the the stairlift one in the haunted mountain. That was yeah, yeah. stairlift was great. That was really good. That was Henry Lewis's idea. That one. Um, who's the guy who, who is in the stairlift? Yeah. yeah, it's really really funny. That came out brilliantly. One of the one of the biggest effects I think we've ever achieved was firing them through that wall. <laughs> yeah, and um, talking about lockdown, when do you think that theatres could reopen? And do you think it would be the same? Oh, it's so difficult to say. It's not really, I mean, I, I only hear things, sort of rumours. So <laughs> at the moment, what I've heard is maybe January next year. Um, yeah. But it's a vague idea, I think. Will it be the same? It depends on the restrictions that are in place. I think the worry at the moment is that if there are social distancing requirements, like you've got to be a metre away or whatever it is, then it just can't yes. happen because theatres can't afford to operate with a reduced capacity like that. So really, they'll only come back probably when either a vaccine is is created or yeah. uh, when social distancing has been completely removed. In either case, uh, they would hopefully be as they were back yeah. when they do Theatre is such a big thing, I think. Well, it's lots of tourists come to Britain to see our mm. theatres. So it's a big loss not having it during this time. Absolutely. And, you know, from my perspective, it's a massive loss because it's yeah. all of my work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so have you got other projects apart from the Goes Wrong show second series lined up? We don't have much lined up at the moment. As I say, the, the, the coronavirus has kind of put a hold on all of our theatre things. We had a lot of ideas, a lot of things that we were working towards and everything has been put on hold. We'd like to take a couple of our shows to Broadway, a couple more shows. Yeah. Um, I think that's a case of waiting for the theatres to reopen and then waiting for one of them to want us. Um, hopefully they will. Uh, and we have, a, we have a few more ideas for other sitcoms we might try and pitch. I think we're possibly looking more to moving into TV uh, and slightly more away from theatre. I think we'll always do theatre shows, but I think probably more focus on TV than theatre. Yeah. Um, you obviously have a huge talent for writing comedies. But would you like to write other genres in your career? I would love to. I don't know if anyone would let me. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you do something well, that's all anyone wants you to do. It's something I've yes. learned. Um, so I, I'm sure I could write a drama script and submit it and people would be nice enough to read it. But I suspect that, there's, that, that there would just be a lot of pressure from all quarters to just say, you do comedy really well and just keep doing comedy because that we know that we can sell a comedy by mischief theater and yeah. producers and channels don't know that they can sell a drama by mischief theater. So there'll be a resistance there. I'd certainly like to one day love to write a movie. Mm. Yeah. It would be much more of a, a risk, I guess. I suppose it would. It's, and it's a very risk averse industry. All anyone's looking for is the safe option. People yeah. are constantly looking for what's the thing I can do that will make the most money have the most success with the least amount of risk and for us that means 
people just want us to write comedies. And uh, finally, who are the people who have inspired you most in theatre or, or TV? Uh, well, John Cleese has always been uh, one of my one of my heroes. Faulty Towers in particular. I've actually just finished rewatching Faulty Towers again because I love it so much. So uh, he's been a big influence. His writing in particular has been a big influence on mine and, and all of Monty Python, really, all of their films. Uh, they were a big, big influence on me. But what, uh, beyond those guys, stand-up comedians. I really adored stand-up comedy growing up. I was just in awe of them. I always wished I could do it myself, but I never really had the, I didn't ever have the confidence that it requires to do stand-up comedy. It's a totally different skill set. Um, I was a really big fan of Ross Noble growing up. Um, because of his connections to improv and now more so uh, Stuart Lee I think is my favorite have you ever watched any Stuart Lee probably not no I haven't but <laughs> uh, yeah he's, he's I mean he's got quite a specific target audience that you probably don't fall into <laughs> but it's really worth it's worth sticking with until you kind of get it and get what he's doing he, he's really really clever well thank you so much for coming on oh thanks for having me it's been a real pleasure Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Henry Shields for agreeing to do the podcast interview. The Jammy podcast will be back for episode three in two weeks time. Thanks and I'll see you then. Music from this podcast was from the website Destiny and Studios and podsummit.com. Remember this podcast was recorded during the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic lockdown and therefore I did interview Henry online.